Welcome to PTSD 911 Presents. My name is Conrad Weaver. I'm so glad you decided to join us today for this program. Sharonda Young Calderon is the widow of Deputy Homero Omar Calderon, an 18-year veteran who died by suicide on June 29, 2018. In honor of her husband and of the many first responders who are suffering in silence, she has become an advocate for mental health and has dedicated her life to breaking the stigmas she feels many are dying from. Sharonda serves on the board of directors for the National Alliance on Mental Illness on, in North Texas, NAMI, and she's also the program director and board member for Blue Health. Please note that the following conversation involves a sensitive topic of suicide. If you or a loved one is suffering from depression and thinking of suicide, please call the national hotline number at 1-800-273-8255. Or if you're in law enforcement and want to speak to someone who's been in law enforcement and understands that life, call 1-800-COP-LINE. That's 1-800-267-5463. And now on to my conversation with Sharonda Young Calderon. Well, Sharonda, welcome to the PTSD 911 Presents podcast. Thank you so much for being willing to come on and talk about your story. So tell me a little Thank bit about... Thank you for about, having me. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about um, kind of your backstory. How did you get involved in the first responder world? What was your entrance into that world like? Well, basically, I was actually introduced in 2000 when I started working for the Dallas County Sheriff's Department, went in as a jailer. Um, uh, in corrections. And then a few years after that, I went over, um, got my license and went to um, uh, DPD, Dallas Police Department, and um, got married in between that time. So actually, my husband didn't want me to go back. So we decided to, I decided to be a stay at home. Well, he decided for me to be a stay at home mom. <laughs> and, um, then, um, and I met my husband there at the Dallas County Sheriff's Department. Um, his name was Deputy Almeto Calderon. We called him Omar, so everyone knows him by Omar. Hmm. And um, we met there. And unfortunately, I lost him to post-traumatic stress. Um, hmm. He took his life June 29th of 2018. Mm -hmm. What were the situations that led up to that point where he took his own life? I would say for the past two years, two years prior to, I noticed the change in him. Uh, it, it was um, it was slow, but yet as it grew, it kind of intensified and things happened. And I would say that when when we had the shooting here uh, that summer, June, when we lost the five police officers um, in downtown Dallas, he was there um, and he changed. That's when I actually started seeing him change the most. And he mm -hmm. never really recovered from it. And he was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress in 2017. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's a pretty dramatic event that I'm sure impacted, you know, most people in that area. Right. And especially if you were in law enforcement. That uh, makes a big difference. What uh, what did you experience as in your brief time in law enforcement? Did you experience some of those stressors yourself? No, I was I was at the jail in corrections most of the time, and that is actually a different beast. People mm -hmm. don't realize that it's mm -hmm. actually harder there. 
And my husband, a lot of his trauma started at the jail. Hmm. He, the last few days in therapy, the things that he spoke about and the dreams that he was having actually were, it was in 2003 when he was at the jail. Hmm. So it's, um, it builds up. So I, I often tell people it's, there's really not like a certain event. It's just like all those years, everything just built up and, uh, and not knowing how to process. That was the thing he, he couldn't process. Hmm. What, so for those listening who may not understand the difference, what are some of those different types of stressors from someone who's on the street and in patrol or someone who's, who's working at a jail? Some of you saw some of those stressors. What, what, what's the difference between the two? What are the, what are, you know, how are those stressors different? Oh, yes. Well, when you're in the jail, you're basically, you're there hands-on. And you're actually in a room, you're confined to these inmates. And you don't have a gun. And they, they don't respect you the most. It's, they will respect the gun, but they do not respect you. So you have, um, you have to fight more. You have to... It's a different, it's a different, it's a different monster, it's a different beast. And the things that you see within the jail or, or the prisons, they stick with you. And um, which my husband, it, it, that was proof. That was the last thing he talked about. That was, it was an in-custody um, death of an inmate. And he was actually the one that would find all the suicides he was the one that would prevent the suicides. Hmm. Um, he would, and it, it affected him. And we, we didn't know that this is something that we had to address or we had to talk about that would cause us problems because no one told us. No one said, hey, this is what could possibly happen while you're here. And this is the help that you can get. You need to get this help. You need to be able to talk about this. We never knew that. And he's in because they didn't train us. And um, and within time, you you will learn that this is what you're supposed to do. But by that time, he that a stigma of getting help. That's what prevented him from doing a lot of things and no one else understanding. The department didn't understand. So I I didn't want to blame them because once again, they didn't understand. So I hope that even with his death, that. It kind of opens their eyes to, okay, we need to get help. And this is what we can do. And we can put things in place. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm with, a, I'm sure it was a large department, you know, in, in the Dallas metro area there. It's surprising to me as a civilian that officers and corrections officers don't have the resources or weren't given the resources to deal with the stress that they obviously would have. And I'm sure uh, your husband wasn't the first one to have stress on this job. You know, it, it wasn't probably wasn't the first one who died this way. Uh, you know, why don't departments like those, you know, provide resources or why didn't they, you know, things are starting to change now, but why didn't they provide those resources? I think it boils down to them feeling like they are failing. Because we're this department and we're supposed to have everything together. So if I acknowledge that my officers are struggling, then I'm admitting that we're failing. 
and no one wants to look like a failure. So it's a lot easier to ignore it and to look over it. Because my husband, he wouldn't take off. He was actually one of the top officers there. So it's easy to hold on to that and just say, oh, well, he's just stressing a little bit. Even though they had the diagnosis, they knew what he was diagnosed with, but because they didn't understand it. And to acknowledge it and admit that this is a problem, maybe it admits failure to them. So they feel that they're failing somehow. Mm -hmm. What and I actually as tell me, um, I had a lieutenant tell me that she failed him because she felt that he could just bounce back because mm. they didn't know. Mm. What as a as a officer's wife, what were some of those first signs that you noticed something wasn't quite right? The irritability. He was irritable. Um, and even little little details being forgetful. I would see him read something over and over. And then I would tell him, Omar, you just read that. And he would go back to read it again because he didn't quite understand it. And now that once, because I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress myself, and I found myself doing the same thing that he did. Sometimes I have to read a paragraph two and three times just to, just to understand it. And it's very frustrating. And those are the things he questioned himself about. He, he said he felt dumb. Mm -hmm. um, there were things like that. Um, sexual. He, um, he couldn't. He was having, he was having some issues there. I actually thought it was um, low testosterone, so I forced him to go to the doctor. Mm -hmm. And I was right. His testosterone levels were extremely low, and um, he was able to take those shots. And he was a big baby. He did not like to take those <laughs> shots. He, would, he had to take them every Wednesday and it would take us an hour for us to put a needle into his thigh. Mm. Um, and once the doctor realized that things weren't really changing, that's when they decided they wanted to test him for some other behaviors. And he was diagnosed with um, bipolar two disorder. And that, that upset him because he said, I'm not crazy. This is not me. Um, so he actually wanted to get second opinion we went to get a second opinion and they diagnosed him with major depressive disorder. So with him having those two diagnoses, he felt as if they don't know what they're talking about. They just want money. They just want to spend my money. And um, his last diagnosis for it, because he actually attempted to take his life in 2017. And at that time they tested him while he was in, we had to get him to a hospital. And once they got him in the hospital, they tested him there. Um, and he was diagnosed post-traumatic stress. Then everything mm -hmm. made sense. I was going to say, was that, in a way, was that kind of a relief for you to have that diagnosis? It was for me, and it actually was for him. Maybe not the diagnosis for him, for him, but the fact that everyone knew. So in two, mm -hmm. um, October 2017, he, uh, he attempted to take his life, so he was actually driving. And the department, they listened to me. So they did a bolo. Um, they put a bolo out on him and we got my baby home. So he was home. We were able to get him into um, into a hospital and he received support. At that time, one of the one of the chiefs came to the to the hospital. Um, and I was actually happy to see that. And um, my husband said he was relieved because now they knew. 
And the mm. support that he was receiving, everyone was telling him, take care of yourself. We'll see you when you get back to work. So they gave him hope because he felt like, okay, I can keep my job and one knows and I can get the help that I needed. But because mm. they didn't understand it, that quickly changed. And they, he was forced to go back to work because once again, we're looking at that is actually part of that stigma. Um, mm. So he was pretty much rushed back to work. And that's when, you know, eight, almost nine months later, that's when he took his life. But mm. that was, those are some of the So when you say he was kind of forced back, it was really, he wasn't quite ready yet. Was that on his own terms that he wasn't really ready yet to go back? And that they were saying you have to go back or, or what, or you lose your job or. Yes, actually he was told that I brought him home on a Monday and I received a call from his Lieutenant and said that he needs to go and get a fit for duty. I said, I just brought him home. He can't, he can't do a psych test right now. Literally, we haven't even found him a, a practitioner outside. You know, we need to get him a psychiatrist out. And his appointment wasn't until the next two to three weeks. But I had to take him and we were there all day. They cleared him to go back to work. And I begged them because I knew that he couldn't go. And he even asked them if he could, you know, if he could stay off. So they let him stay off another week or two. And they told him, you have to come back or you'll lose your job. We're short. Mm -hmm. Uh, you were just stressed out. You were just having some family problems. You can just get over this. We all we all deal with this. We've all been stressed out before. Just come on back. And came back and he struggled while he was there. Now, mind you, when he was there, my husband at work, you wouldn't know that he was going through anything because he got tunnel vision. And actually, that was his safe space. Uh, he... He used to work overtime. That was the way he coped with what was going on with him. So he would work overtime because they kept busy. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And mm -hmm. it, it backfired on him. Because mm -hmm. I told people all the time, you can only handle it for so long, but eventually the monster grows. And if you don't know how to fight him, you're going to fight him with just the little tools that you have. And if you don't acquire any other tools, He's going to get bigger and you're not going to be able to fight him with what you already started off with. And that's what happened. Yeah. Hmm. Took him over. You know, it's interesting. Just this past week, I was out in California and I was sitting in a restaurant and there was a couple of gentlemen sitting down for me and we got to talking and they ended up, they were firefighters. And, and then actually the, the, the lady serving was the wife of one of the firefighters. So we kind of got the talking and, and, uh, when, when the guys left, she told me he just stays busy all the time. He's just busy, 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 busy. And, you know, he plays in a band and he does all these things and he just never stops. And I, I, you know, I thought to myself, I thought that's really a sign of someone who's not dealing with the stuff that's going on in their head. And I think that that is, I think many people that I've talked to over the last few years, you know, that's, that's one of the things that, that they do because their brain's always going right. And, and it's just, if you stay busy, you don't think about the things that, that haunt you. So did you experience and, and, some of that yourself it, in, in when you were diagnosed? I was diagnosed after he died and, mm -hmm. um, I was, I was totally different. The same 
things that he dealt with as far as like comprehension, I dealt with that, the irritability, mm-hmm. I dealt with that, um, the negative self-talk, the negative things. Um, and I even um, attempted to take my life six months after he died. Mm. So it was, I did experience that, but as far as staying busy, no, that was the way that he coped. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I, I think the reason why they stay busy so much, especially with work and overtime, is because they feel that's what they're doing right. Because mm-hmm. he was a, he's an excellent, I'm not just saying because he's my husband, but he was an excellent mm-hmm. officer and he knew that right, but he felt like he couldn't do anything else right. He was having mm-hmm. problems. He didn't, he wasn't open to understanding because of what you're diagnosed with. That's why we're ha- having these problems. Mm-hmm. So the rest of his life was kind of falling apart, but that's one area that he could control and could, could do, could perform. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, first of all, I'm very sorry for your loss and what you've experienced. Um, and, um, this happens as, as you well know, way too often. What was, what happened in the aftermath there? I know there's a story there with how did the department treat that death? Well, unfortunately, um, that's a little bit of the story, how, how it all happened. He, he was supposed to come home Tuesday. I heard him in the garage, but he didn't come into the house like normal. I go out to the garage. He's not there. I see his service weapons are missing. I immediately start calling him. And my, that's when my son noticed that his phone was on the shelf. He was like, he's, he's here. His phone is here. So I call the department to ask them, you know, to let them know that he's going to do it this time. I need your help looking for him. They, um, they told me to contact our local police department. And the local police department came out, said I would need to do a missing persons report, but I would have to wait 24 hours. Mm. Um, so we wait the 24 hours. They told me they put a bow out on him. I felt like they didn't, which in fact they mm. didn't. It was dispatched and an hour later it was canceled. Mm. But they told them, they told um, the officers not to tell me this. Mm. And um, a couple of days go by. I get a call. I get a knock on the door Friday and the the chaplain and I believe it was the chief and everyone was there and they told me they found him in the parking lot and he he was gone and he actually sat there for um two because they found him on the third day so he sat wow. there in the parking lot the whole time um mm-hmm. right there and within the parking lot of the of the department oh wow um, after um okay after we found out that he's gone the the sh- I was they were told not to come to the funeral they couldn't wear their uniforms mm. um and if they did they would be written up but i'm so proud of i'm actually proud of the department because um it's like the officers because they were told they couldn't show up and they mm. showed up anyway and they were willing to help out uh my husband was supposed to receive the on duty honors um well off duty honors just as if he was um if he worked in, as a custodian, there is just some honors that you would just receive because you've been with the department, but they said he couldn't have those. 
Uh, the mm. sheriff said because in the manner in which she died, um, she didn't want to glamorize or condone suicide. So she felt they would have given him anything. They were condoning and glamorizing suicide. Um, so the sheriff, she showed up. She actually came to the funeral. I thought was that she wasn't, you know, she didn't want to come because we had the media there. And she spoke negatively about mm. him, suicide at the, at the funeral. Hmm. And it was it was it was hard because now you have a family that's trying to process losing him. And now I'm trying to process how do I live? And we're already the, the unique thing about suicide is that that pain transfers over to the family. Hmm. So we have this guilt. We have this thing because we felt like we could have done more. And because I knew my husband's struggle, I told him that if he fell, I would never let him hit the ground. That's what I used to tell him. And I felt like I turned away and he hit the ground. So I had so much guilt and there was just zero support when it came to after that, that death and, and supporting the family and just a simple phone calls to ask how I was doing. That, that was zero support. I had a few people that mm -hmm. would call. Even then the stigma is so, it was so, so strong that they would do it in secrecy. Because they don't want anyone to know that I'm calling, checking on you. So it wow. was one of the stigma. It was just just understanding how it works and how post traumatic stress, how it works. And I wish that I hope that they understand it and get it now. Because he wasn't the only one that was struggling, and I knew that he wasn't. There were officers that used to talk to him, and he would talk them off the ledge. Actually, the Day before that Monday, before he left, he was talking to another officer. So I had so much fear for them. I had so much fear for them. Um, mm. But that's unfortunately that's that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And I know I believe you told me a few weeks ago when we we met in person. You said uh, that, or I, actually, someone told me that your insurance benefits were cut the day after he passed. Yes, um, the a couple of days after the funeral, my little boy, and I, I get choked up about it all the time. So forgive me. My little boy, he was 11 at the time. He came into the bedroom and he, he told me, he said, mom, I found a way that I could hug my dad again. Hmm. And he said, but I don't want to tell you. So, you know, I'm panicking and I, you know, I encourage him to tell me and, and make it, you know, that he's, that's okay to tell me. He said, if I kill myself hmm. and he was, he had like, it hit the look on his face, but he had like this epiphany. He was, I can do this. And he was happy. He actually had joy in his eyes. Mm -hmm. So it terrified me. So I contact our practitioner because I need to get him into the doctor office immediately. And I was told that your insurance was canceled on mm -hmm. a Saturday. So they found him on Friday. His insurance was canceled on the 30th, which was a Saturday. So I was, oh stuck. I didn't know what to do because I didn't have insurance. I felt like a failure and I was stuck and I didn't, I didn't have anyone to tell me the next steps or, or help me navigate any of that. Wow. And, and were you working at the time or not? No, I was a stay at home mm -hmm. mom. So depending on his insurance mm -hmm. and it was, it's horrible. So all of a sudden you were, you had no income, you had no insurance, you had no support. What did you do? 
Well, I, it felt like a little secret service. Um, there was a lady that called me. Um, she just wanted to know because the story ran on the news. So she knew a little about what was going on. And another officer, he contacted me and said, someone's going to call you, answer the phone. And I, I answered the phone and, well, she left the number and actually called her. And she said, what, what do you need? What help do you need? And I said, I need insurance for my children. That's all that I need. I wasn't worried about myself. I said, I need insurance for my boys. That's all that I need right now. And she said, take this number and call them. They're expecting you. So, which was actually the One Tribe Foundation. I called that mm-hmm. number and it was, they knew exactly who I was, they answered the phone. And I told them, you know, I was given this number and he said, when can you come in, Sharonda? And it felt, I was kind of like, what's going on here? How did he know? <laughs> and um, I came, uh, I brought the boys and they, um, they said, what is, what is it that you need? And I told them that I needed therapy. So they offered me therapy for myself as well as my three children free. Say, so don't worry about it. They said, if you need it for three days, um, one month or 30 years, you won't have to pay. And that's wow. that, that burden was lifted off of me. And I, I, off, I attribute me still being here because of them, because six months later on Thanksgiving day, I attempted to take my life in the park. And because mm-hmm. of the little things that, that I did pick up from therapy, um, that saved me, that, mm-hmm. that, that saved me. So, and, and having um, clinicians that understood because even when Omar, when we actually found him, some doctors, they didn't know how to handle, they didn't understand how to talk to him. They didn't understand the, his vernacular, his background. They, mm-hmm. It was different. And it actually made things worse because they didn't understand the culture. Mm-hmm. And I, I said that I wish that I would have had that for him because they understood the culture and they understood where I was coming from. And that, that ultimately saved my life. It, I know that it did. So, um, mm-hmm. and that set me on my road, my, my journey, you know, to healing. And it started mm-hmm. there, you know, with one tribe. And, and from there, I was mm-hmm. able to learn to adapt and to understand that with post-traumatic stress, it doesn't go away, but you can learn to live with it and you can, you can function. You, it may, you have to function a little differently, but even then that becomes muscle memory and, and you learn. And, and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have had that if I didn't get that therapy mm-hmm. that I wish that my husband would have had. Yeah. What do you think, looking back, what should have been in place at the department? What resources perhaps could have, you know, spared you guys from going down this, this path? And with, I think peer support, I think even though peer support isn't a, you know, one size fits all. But if they had that just a little bit of peer support, that would have made a little bit of a difference. And the reason why I say this is because after we got my husband back home the first time, someone reached out to him and said, I know what you're feeling. So that was like a burden lifted off of him because he didn't feel alone because someone knew what he was going through. And I think that if he would have had that peer support and people being open, and sharing this is what I'm struggling with, that would have helped him to, to being okay to getting the therapy because he actually wanted the therapy, 
but with them making him come back to work and they also punished him, um, they changed the shift. And when mm-hmm. he needed to take yeah. off to go to the doctor to say, hey, you know, we don't have the manpower to stay. So we couldn't get therapy. And they told him, you can't take any medications because I'll take your gun away from you. So he didn't have any medication. So he was basically a walking, ticking time bomb. And he eventually exploded. But if they would, that is the one thing, if they would have peer support in place, if they would have, um, and it's difficult, you know, to have things, but if you would have open discussions, I often say a poster on the wall makes a difference. When you see something talking about post-traumatic stress, and if you can just normalize that just a little bit, that makes a big difference for someone that's struggling. But with peer support for my husband would have worked because that conversation was open. Um, having, even having classes. If we have classes and not just the eight hour class that you take in the beginning of the academy, um, mm-hmm. but if you would have those classes available um, pretty often to educate the officers on the stressors and what these stressors actually can and will do to you and actually what it's doing to you right now, because you are changing. It's impossible for you to see the trauma and go through the trauma. The trauma changes you. And if they understand that, okay, I'm changed and I can learn to do other things because most officers, they, they don't realize that they're actually having problems because they've adapted to it and it has become a part of them for so long, they're not even aware that they're, that they're doing anything wrong. They can't see it. But if they're taking those classes, they can recognize themselves and they can see, okay, I do have a problem. I can get that. Maybe I can change things up. But I think if we have more classes, more awareness, um, peer support, and having that flexibility um, to be able to take off from work for my mental health if I need to, without feeling that I'm going to lose my job. Because that's the main thing. You don't want your gun taken away from you. And you most definitely don't want to lose your job because you have a family to take care of. And my husband loved being an officer. So to take that from him, the only thing in his mind, the only thing that I can do right, actually put him on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Wow. So just having normalized conversations around wellness and mental health can make a difference. So just having those dialogues, those classes, that that peer support, those posters on the wall, just little things like that, that aren't necessarily huge budget items, but just normalizing those conversations can really begin to turn the tide for an agency. Exactly. Save a life. That's actually how you save a life. Something so small could actually save a life. Wow. Wow. So how did this um, tragedy, what, what has come out of that for you? Um, it has actually given me beauty for my ashes. It's actually set me on this. Um, there's pain. You know, there's purpose in my pain now. I've become an advocate. I can't see myself doing anything any differently right now and going back to school to finish my degree so that I can be um, most effective you know, to the first responder community. Um, I'm a board member with NAMI, you know, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, um, to be there and to be a part of that 
you know, the peer support and the train the trainer program, which is something that is so near and dear to my heart because I feel that this is in this is in my husband's. This is his hometown. And if he had this, he would still be here. But now someone else has it and they can stay here and they can have one less family, one less family that has to deal with this pain. And um, to be on the board member, to be a board member and the program director, Blue Help. I didn't I never thought that I would be here, that it was possible, but it's pain into purpose. So it has set me on the road to even recovery myself. Because the more that I'm active and involved, I'm learning how every day how to um, deal with my own, my own, uh, own trauma uh, and to know that it's not a death sentence. My husband felt that it was a death sentence. Hmm. No one told him that it didn't have to be. And, and ironically, when I was diagnosed with it, I went through the same emotions like him. No, I'm... They're going to think I'm crazy. Even though I was encouraging him, I was mimicking every single thing that he did, every single thing that he said, I was mimicking it. And, um, but I did have a wonderful support um, therapist, you know, and that whole tribe, I had that support to let me know that, no, you can live with this. And, and meeting other officers and military um, vets that, have gone through it and are dealing with it and listening to them tell me, hey, this is how I'm coping and you're going to be okay. This is not a death sentence. So, and I can able, I can push that, I can, I can push that forward to someone else that, hey, this is not a death sentence. This happens. It's human. It happens to us. And you don't have to, you don't have to die from it. You don't have mm. to die. Mm. So I know with uh, with Blue Help, I, I've, I've read that you're putting together a camp for children of officers who died by suicide. Yes, we'll have our um, second annual. Last year we had uh, Camp April. And um, Camp April, actually, um, Karen Solomon, she's one of the founders. She met a lady that lost her husband um, to suicide. And this little lady traveled. Um, to where Karen was, they were having a conference because she just needed to be in the room with someone that understood. And Karen met her, she had um, twins and her husband took her life shortly after the babies were born. And just like myself, one of the babies got sick, took to the hospital, your insurance was canceled. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why we have camp, her name is April. And that's where Camp April came from because she was just so strong that was, something that stayed with us and um to have the children together unless you understand how isolating is to be a survivor of suicide you'll never understand what it feels like to be in a room with people that get it i remember when i was um looking for grief groups and i found a grief group and i didn't belong because my husband died by suicide Mm -hmm. So I find a suicide grief group. I didn't belong because he was a police officer. Mm -hmm. You'll be amazed at how people will even judge you, even in grief. Wow. So to have these children mm -hmm. together to where everyone understands. They don't have to explain themselves and they can actually be normal children because they're walking around. They, they're feeling so abnormal. 
even if they're even if they're with a friend that has lost another family member still hey it's not suicide and it's not a police officer so you have like two two marks against you mm. but to see these children together and forming relationships it is the best feeling so this year we're actually having one and it's actually going to be in a camp setting last year we mm. did it was at a hotel because we had to quickly do it but mm-hmm. uh, because of Olorola, they sponsored us to do it again this year. So we'll bring those children back together in July and just let them have a good time and process their uh, trauma and their healing because they need to heal. Because they're carrying that weight with them, aren't they? They are. It's it's a struggle mm-hmm. and it's a battle. And I, I watch my own children. Um, they're, they're fighters. They're strong, but I watch them struggle. Mm-hmm. So uh, you're going on to get a degree. What what do you hope to do with that? What what do you plan on doing with your degree? I'm planning on to be the most effective, to be there, um, to be a counselor, because I understand. Um, and I know where they're coming from. And I can I have that compassion because I've been there and I think that I can I can do more to help them that way and to help navigate them through that part of life that otherwise feels like you're stuck in and you feel that you're alone. And it's hard to find clinicians that are, that are based that understand first responder military. It's it's very hard to find those things. And I want to be one of those that, that I can help. That's how I keep Omar alive. That's how I keep his legacy alive because of him. I'm able to do this. It's he's still even in death. He's still giving because he was such mm-hmm. a giver. He being a police officer, people you don't. A lot of people aren't aware that you you're giving your life. You're putting your life on the line. You're doing everything for everyone, and it's selfless. But you enjoy it. So mm-hmm. even in death, why can't he do the same? And that's what mm-hmm. he's doing. Mm-hmm. And we and with, and in Blue Help now we actually have a support group. So I facilitate a support group because once again, suicide and a first responder, it's hard to find that anywhere else. Well, we have that. So it's since we're such a unique group and the, the needs are different, the pain is different. So we actually have that for the families too, so that they can, they can be themselves because that's where the healing starts. You're able to be in a room with people that understand you. That's actually the first step of healing because now I know that it's okay and I don't feel alone and I'm not isolated because someone else understands. And seeing a lot of the first responders, they actually see the pain and it's making a difference even with them because um, this whole thing with the stigma around it, you don't talk about it. But now we're open, we're out here and you know, like with, you know, with first help, because now it's actually first help because it's all first responders. We're out there in everyone's face. So now it's not so quiet. Now, you know, that there are actually family members that are left behind. And when you can actually see the pain and the toll that is taken on their lives, those officers are, are those, you know, firefighters, all of it. Once they see that, they don't want that for their family. So they may get the help they need. Hmm. I want you to speak to that law enforcement spouse, wife, husband, uh, first responder spouse who sees their partner struggling 
and they don't know what to do. What should an individual do if they see their partner uh, dealing with some stuff? What, what are some steps they can take to, to help their spouse? The first step that they need to take is to acknowledge that it is actually a problem because a lot of the times as a spouse, you kind of second guess, is it me or if it's them? But you know that it's them, it's that change. So you kind of have to stand your ground and you have to make them uncomfortable mm. because once again, they don't want to know that they're failing somewhere and they don't want you to know they're failing, even though they feel like they're failing anyway. And you're just acknowledging it. So you're going to be met with some some anger, you know, or some resistance to getting that help. I would tell them. Stay on them. If that if there is anything, stay on them because they will thank them later. You may be angry now, but they'll thank them later and start looking for some resources yourself. Because if you're going through. If you're having that hard time, if you're going through a crisis, it's impossible to look for help. So they need to start building those resources. I tell anyone, period, start building your resources. Find out what does your department offer? Um, what clinicians that are, um, well, the, you know, first responder friendly that understands. Have those things because it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. And you have those resources um, that you can reach out to. Because most of the time you're going to be the ones to have to reach out because they're not going to. And you encourage them to go to the doctor. You may have to force them to do it, but that's what you'll need to do. And for them to understand that them going to the doctor, your department doesn't have to know this. You can still get that help that you need without the department knowing. And if they invent that they have to be notified of it, you know, go through your FMLA, um, your packet and see what you can do, how much time you can take off. Because you don't necessarily have to tell them what it is that you're dealing with. Um, and a lot of people, they don't know that. So acknowledging that there is a problem and not trying to ignore it. And have patience with them and compassion. Because a lot of the times when they're going through a crisis, you're going through that crisis too. So it's easy to feel like you're the one that they're taking it out on. And it's easy to be, to, to be overly sensitive. But just understand that they have so much more going on in their minds that it has actually nothing to do with you. And they actually need just you to be. They need that compassion from you. They need that safe space. Because they right now they don't feel safe, but they need that safe space. My husband thanked me for it the day that he died. That Tuesday when he left for work, he thanked me for loving him and thanked me for pushing him. So it's kind of like strange. I felt bad about doing it because I felt like, hey, I was the one that pushed him over. But I had to remember he thanked me for that. And that's what I would tell them. You find resources, find out what your department has available or even the local departments. What's around? What, what's available as far as peer support? Um, what's available as far as the clinicians? And, and, and make sure they're first responder friendly because that makes a difference, too. Mm hmm. What needs to change when it comes to um, law enforcement or first responder suicide? What needs to change in the culture of the first responder community to recognize these deaths as line of duty? They need to start seeing their officers as human. 
because post-traumatic stress and any of these emotional, you know, whether you want to call it disorder, injury, those are all human issues. So they need to normalize that's human. If you can um, go out on a call to do a welfare check on someone, you know, that's, that's in a, a mental crisis and you can handle them with compassion and understanding and you even have a mental liaison, a, an officer that actually will escort and they're trained in doing this. How about we train each other on how to take care of each other? Because it's actually, it's, it's a little more difficult when, because you can't handle the officer like you would handle a civilian. So your training actually needs to be a little more unique in how you even address that officer that's going to be resistant. Some officers want the help and that's actually good. But there are some that actually need it and are resistant to it because of that stigma. So having those things available and, and training, 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 we train how to take care of ourselves physically. How about we train to take care of ourselves mentally and emotionally? And how about we train how to take care of my brother and sister in blue or or red, <laughs> you know, uh, how about we learn how to do that? Because we have to learn how to take care of each other. And that doesn't come naturally. It comes natural for some people, but overall, it doesn't come naturally. So they have to be trained to do that. Mm. Wow, this has been so uh, insightful and, and helpful for, for me to better understand this. Um, I know when I was out in, in the Dallas area, I was talking with Todd Jerry, who you know well, and he told me that I know recently there was another law enforcement suicide and the two of you were at the funeral together and it was uh, full honors. What did that, what did that do for you to see that? I will tell you that was the best feeling. I felt, even though I had to keep telling myself, don't cry, don't cry, because it was actually my first funeral of a, an officer that died by suicide since Omar died. And I thought that I was going to have like some emotional issues, but I was at peace because I knew what the family was going. I, I knew that their journey was at a good start. I knew that they were in, they were taken care of. So I knew it was a possibility that they wouldn't be where I was and they wouldn't lose each other. Because the one thing about this um, being a survivor and post-traumatic stress, you think that you have control, but you have no control mm -hmm. unless you learn how to have control. And um, to see them give him honors, it warmed my heart. I, I felt, I felt happy. I was, I was and it, I know and it, it sounds morbid, but I was happy because he deserved it. Listening to them talk about who he was as a person and not the way that he died that's what it's supposed to be. Talked about him personally and, and on the job and having his friends and love officers talk about him, you know, in the most uplifting ways. And he was a character. Like my husband was a character. He was, he was a jokester. And this guy was a jokester too. Um, and to see them embrace and embrace the family, to let the family know that I'm here for you and you're going to be okay. So when I watched that family, I knew they were going to be okay because it already started. Those mm -hmm. moments after the death and how the department surrounds you, because 
ironically enough, the department is still your connection to your husband. See, that is your connection to him. So you can't really get rid of that because you still need that to hold on to. Because you're still processing this just happened. The department was still holding on to them. So, and even now when I see them now and, and hear from them now, they're doing well in spite of they're doing well. And I know for a fact it's because of the treatment they received right after mm-hmm. their husband, husband and father died. Mm-hmm. So in, as we wrap up here, I want you to speak to those leaders in law enforcement specifically, those chiefs, those captains, those you know lieutenants who may take a kind of a casual look at a view of PTSD or PTS. Uh, what should they know uh, about the officers who they lead and how should they be treated? Those officers, they should be respected the utmost because they're fighting a, a battle in their mind and they're fighting a war that no one else sees. So to me, they're stronger than the average person because they're fighting every day just to stay, just to live. They're fighting and they need support. The only thing they need from you is compassion and help so that they can continue to live the life that they're trying to live. And they give their lives every day. And unfortunately, this is the only job that that takes away from you. A lot of jobs you gain so much from, but this profession is the only profession that actually takes away from you every day. It, it takes a little bit of you away. And just respect them. Respect. You say there's a brotherhood. Honor that brotherhood by taking care of your officer because this is a human issue. It doesn't mean that they're weak. In fact, they're actually stronger than the average person. They're, it's, it's strong. They are stronger. I have so much compassion for my husband since I was able to feel exactly what he was feeling and I couldn't function, but he functioned as best as he could dealing with that. And that's a hard, it's a hard battle. So they're not weak. They're just human. And that, and trauma happens to you. They don't cause it themselves. It happens to you and they can help how their brain internalizes and how it changes them. That's the one thing that they don't have any control over as much as they would want to, they don't have control over that. So Show them the support that you're supposed to show them. Show them the support that you show the civilians because it could happen to anyone. Any, it can happen to anyone. There are a lot of teen time bums walking around just because and afraid to get the help. Unfortunately, we have some future officers that will take their lives just because no one has made it available and said that it was okay to not be okay. And this is the help that you need. So normalize being human, normalize those conversations about taking care of yourself, not just physically, mentally as well. They should go together. And I'll guarantee you'll have a lot more officers staying. You have a lot more officers understanding themselves. And especially in the climate that we're in, we have a lot of we have a lot of trauma on top of that. The climate for them is horrible and they're still here and they're still doing their job. They're still putting their lives on the line every day. And unfortunately, they more than likely will die by their own hands. So just, just remember that brotherhood that you say um, is strong and that you support 
that support goes across the board, even in situations like this. And, and if this should happen, um, because it will, suicide will, honor that officer by supporting that family. Because that's family and you're, we're supposed to be family. And let's not forget that. Because we gave, once they joined <laughs> this this organization, this force, once they joined, they they decided that they were going to put their whole lives on the line. And they actually did because you're never off as a police officer. You're never off duty. And they decided to do that. They chose to do that. Honor them by helping them stay here. Help them choose to stay here. Hmm. Wow. Well, Saranda, thank you so much for your story, for sharing your story. Thank you for what you're doing now for for other first responders and other families. Uh, it's, uh, I'm sure it means a lot to those families to, to hear from someone who's been there and been through that same experience. So thank you for, for the work you're doing. I really appreciate that. And thanks for being on the program today. Thank you for having me. And I want to thank you for what you're doing. My heart warms every time I see what you're doing because you have no idea how much you're changing the world too. And I wish that my husband was here and he could see that and he could see what you're doing because you're doing a major thing. You're saving lives and it, it doesn't get any bigger than that. You're 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 part of, of that program of saving lives. And I want to thank you for it. Well, it's a privilege and an honor for me to do this. And so, um, yeah, I'll do it as long as I possibly can and we'll keep moving forward. So, uh, I, again, I appreciate you being on the program and, uh, if someone wants to reach out to you, is that something that you're, you're willing to talk to, to others who, who may be experiencing some of these things? Absolutely. Um, I'm very much so open and, and, and welcoming and I, I appreciate it. And it's an honor for me to even be able to help. Um, so Sharonda at bluehelp.org, they can contact me there. Um, and even you can go to our website and my number's there. So just reach out to any of us almost definitely whether it's family member an officer yes please contact me and i will actually contact you with what within my my resources what can we do and sometimes if it's just to talk i'm here okay well i will put those links in in the show notes and uh, so people can access that if they if they choose to so again thank you so much i really appreciate it thank you Sharonda, thank you for sharing your story. And if you're out there listening and you need to speak to someone and you're going through some difficult times, please reach out. The National Suicide Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. Or if you're in law enforcement and want to speak to someone who's also been in law enforcement and can help you, please call 1-800-COPLINE. That's 1-800-267-5463. Don't go through this alone. There is help available and there is hope for you and for your family. Hey, thanks so much for watching. Thanks so much for listening to the program today. If you are on YouTube or if you're on Apple Podcasts and you find value in this content, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And also, I'd love it if you'd send me a review. Let me know what you think about the program and give us a five-star review if you feel it's worth it. And also, please, I invite you to share it with your tribe. Let other people know about this program so that they can benefit from it as well. Thank you so much for being here. Take care. Take care of yourself. Be well. And I'll talk to you again soon.